All righty, here we are. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Can you all hear me okay online? Good. Yeah. Uh, so no, you know what? I'll, I'll give you one look at the assembled too. I don't see you visually. So um, John wasn't here this morning. He had to do something. He sets up my computer stuff for me, and, and I've conveniently neglected to figure out how to do it because I don't want to be responsible for it. Oh, here, this is my, this is my camera, too, so you can see me, too. Okay. And and where I'm normally sitting, I'm a little more in the shadow because the sun would be right in my eyes, so I've, sh I've changed everything today. All right. We are in Jude, and so we stopped yesterday, or last week, I should say, at verse 10, um, and, and what is the issue in Jude? Who can who can remember what we're talking about? Um, verse four gives a hint. Yeah, verse four was certain men have crept in unnoticed. So we talked about the way the infiltration of the Christian community with false teaching, and, and these are people who um, would have pretended to, to be authentic teachers, so they're not obviously, and that's always the problem with in the church is that the real danger comes from those who look like they're real and, and aren't, so that, um, uh, you know, you have to, you have to kind of... Um, discern and and so so um jude is helping them discern and last time we had um images of judgment we talked about um the uh, israel coming out of egypt and yet many came out of egypt but not a lot of who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness because they didn't follow what God has said to do. And this, so it's the same thing we're, we're going to enter into more today is this, is this repeated idea that as Christians, we're living in a story that can be understood in terms of the Old Testament narratives. And um, so... It, it's it's um, we are Israel who were led out of Egypt back to the waters of baptism to fill the waters of the Red Sea. 
And, and when we celebrate Holy Week and go through all those narratives, we're remembering again that we were saved from slavery to sin through the baptismal waters and brought out into freedom. And then like Israel, we remember that there's a time of testing after that. So people who creep, and there are people who can be in the church, but who don't persevere in doing, in, in being faithful to our Lord in times of trial, that, that, that's like those in Israel who are overthrown in the wilderness. So we, we see this narrative connection. And he, he mentioned last time the, um, the angels who didn't keep their proper domain. Um, and we talked about this being the angels probably of, of Genesis uh, 5 and 6, 5, I think it is, who um, um, see the, the, it says, the sons of God saw the daughters of women that they were fair. And the idea of the sons of God, they are angels. And they're, they're, they lusted after human women, that there were these unions across the boundaries that, that um, has those angels chained and, and, and to be judged because they left there. They didn't observe the proper boundaries of life. In the same way that the false teachers reject authority. So today, let's let's jump in um, and um, I'll start reading from verse ten because there that leads us into uh, eleven that we wanted that, that I I stopped there because we didn't have the time to talk about the three stories that he mentions in verse eleven. <clears throat> um, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So there are three stories here, three narratives that he is drawing the um, these false teachers, prophets, people who have crept in unaware, he's, he's liking them to. What is the way of Cain? Killed his brother, but there's, you know, what's, so what, what would be, I mean, obviously, what's that? So Cain, if we look at way of Cain, uh, Jack said that his offering is not, was, was not accepted. Um, so there's there's a sequence of 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 a, of a narrative of Cain. Um, Cain brought an offering to the Lord that was rejected, and in that narrative of Genesis four, uh, there, it, it's really a, a narrative to kind of reflect on. Well, I mean, hey, why don't we instead of talking about reflecting on it, why don't we look at it? So. Oh, uh, turn your Bibles back to, to, to Genesis chapter 4. And I just read it because it's, it's a significant to talk about the contours of it as emblematic of, of, of the pattern of unfaithfulness.
In the process of time, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, and they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. He goes on, the Lord puts the mark of Cain on Cain. Um, but it's interesting in the story. So, so what's wrong with Cain's offering? I'm asking everyone the question. What's wrong with what's wrong with his offering? There is there is a a, a mention of this in the um, New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11 gives you know gives us a little bit of a of a clue um, it says in hebrews 11 verse 4 it says by faith abel offered to god a more excellent sacrifice than cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous so Abel offers in faith, which and we're told in the text that he offered his first and best, so he wanted to to give his best to God. The implication, therefore, of Cain is that he knew he was supposed to make an offering. You know, the plate was passed. I got to. I got to do something. Here's something, and it was inadequate. Didn't really, you know, reflect his first and best, and so it wasn't really in faith. Grudging, you know. We're in, we're, these are implications. The, the text doesn't give us exactly. It just says it's not acceptable, but. Now, there have been some commentators about the sacrifice of Cain who say that, um, well, it's because, you know, Abel offered the blood sacrifice and Cable, Cain just offered the ordinary grain. But that could be silly because Cain was probably just a farmer, whereas Abel was a shepherd. So it doesn't really make sense to, to discount it on that basis, absent some other piece of information. Um, so then, then not only that. So, let's, but the story is interesting because Cain doesn't do the right thing, whatever it was he didn't do, and he's mad. Well, because God did, you know, God points out he did the right thing. Well, you know, and like we get in human nature when, yeah. Well, it builds, but then God just says, "Okay, why are you mad? Do the right thing, and it'll be fine." 
go fix it. Because he says, uh, sin is, is crouching at your door. It will, you, you, you should rule over it. This is, and this actually gets back to the, the refrain we had in Revelation, uh, uh, to him who conquers, I will give. And it's Cain supposed to conquer this impulse to not honor God as he ought to, and then to be mad that God points it out. And then, so he has an opportunity to repent, which he doesn't. And why would he then kill his brother? What's his brother got to do with the fact that God doesn't? Jealous of his brother. Okay. So how, how does... What does killing your brother do to help you with your, your jealousy or your impulse? So, yeah, I mean, so is, is there a human phenomenon where when somebody else is doing the right thing and, and we're not and don't want to deal with it, we get angry at them? And this is Good Friday. We've all sinned. Why are they, why are we all yelling at him who has not sinned? Because he highlights the fact that we have, and we, we want to eliminate the evidence of it. We don't like the good people because they make, they, they reveal our sins. We're going to eliminate the witness. That may be in a nutshell, the, um, the essence of persecution. Persecution, that you're a witness to the to the to the to, to God's testimony and presence that people don't want to hear, so they want it to get rid of it. What do you mean? For all we know, Abel was a pretty good dude, too. But this also gets back to something about love, is that um, he's most loving, but he's not afraid to tell you that what you're doing is wrong and to, and to correct it. So love, that has an aspect of love. God is love, just right in Genesis. And love says, yeah, you do the right thing. I'm, I'm highlighting this. Now go fix it conquer it, but I'm not going to lie to you and act, oh, it's all great love. So love in our time tends to be, oh, I love you, you love me. And what, what, that's the sin of sentimentality, where we substitute the feelings for the reality of the thing. And it is why that in our own offerings, giving our first and best, whether we feel like it or not, is significant. We do the right thing, whether we feel like it or not. And it, it tends to be that um, our unfaithfulness is rooted in the, in the um, the temptation to act on how we feel. 
rather than to act on what we ought to do, what is the right thing. And faithfulness requires the willingness to continue to do the right thing when we don't feel like it. So now we get back to Jude. So they've gone the way of Cain. They've not brought the right offering. They're marked out as having done wrong. They're not sorry. And they slander and kill, you know, and they're killing literally, but it seems like there's some slandering. They don't, they, those who highlight the air of these people, they lash out at. And that's, so we shouldn't be surprised. It's very insightful in the human psychology. We shouldn't be surprised when that's how people react to the witness and testimony of the church. Of course. Daryl's giving an example of a woman who's was Roman Catholic and her husband died and then she went to church afterwards and the priest did some shit like she should stop going. Um, which, of course, highlights um, a dynamic of love for God and even love for the body of Christ is that if you really love God and love Christ and love his body, the church, you won't stop doing what you're supposed to do because someone in it doesn't do what you like. And it, 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 but that's that happens a lot. But that's that's the kind of thing that reveals. Now I'm not I'm not certainly consigning your friend to the nethermost hell, but it's problematic. It's at the very least uh, a sign of grave spiritual immaturity. When, when yeah, and and so uh, anyway, there we are. So there's our aim, aim Cain. So they've got so they've run greedily. The second one is. Um, have run greedily into the error of Balaam for profit. Now, who is Balaam and what's the story there? Didn't, didn't he start out uh, strong, but then when the reward was offered to kind of tempt the Israelites to sin through immorality, he succumbed? Well, the, the, like let's, let's go back to the story of Balaam, which we're, we got light on the story itself. So the, 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 the Moabites, Israel is, is coming to the promised land through the wilderness. And the, the story of Balaam is in numbers. Let's, let's open it up so that um, uh, people can. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Uh, Deuteronomy and the story of um, Balaam, I believe, is in Numbers 22. Um, and so let me just read the beginning of the story of Balaam for everybody here from Numbers chapter 22. Um, then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab. And again, this is after the Exodus. 
God has led Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness, and now they're they're moving towards the promised land. And uh, the nations, especially with Moab, uh, that, that they're going through is afraid of this people, afraid that they will come and conquer them. So the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all Israel, what, that all that Israel had done to the Amorites, Israel had won a victory over a previous nation that they passed through. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were very many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. Verse 5, then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him saying, look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me. They are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So there's this, there's this Balaam who's known to be a prophet. And the king of Moab tries to hire him to invoke a curse upon Israel so that his country won't be conquered. Now, this is a three-chapter in number story, which we're not going to read right now. But um, some of the highlights of the story from here are that um, so Balak sends, sends people to him to get him, and God speaks to Balaam and says, don't go because I, I'm not going to bless them. And then, so the messengers from the king go back and tell the king he won't come. And so the king sends a little bit more money, a few more important people, and goes and asks them again. And here's the first hint of the problem for Balaam. Balaam sees more money, more people, and says, let me go ask God again what he thinks about this. And then God says, he says, go, but as he goes, he encounters on the way, the angel of the Lord standing in the middle and his donkey sees the angel with the sword, but Balaam doesn't see it. And the donkey starts hitting his donkey. And this is metaphorical, obviously. When God says, go, you know, th this is something that's very important to understand in our own spiritual lives that if, if you take the unambiguous word of God, don't do this, and, and begin having a conference about it, well, let's see. What God says now, God's going to probably, good luck with that. And so this go is, is um, once you know God said don't go, you just don't go. Don't do it, you just don't do it. And if you do it, you make a good confession, unlike Cain, and you get restored. You don't, but you, but there's no doubt about what the, and we get in trouble when we take the clear word of God and say, well, we'll see, what does this really mean? 
thou shalt not covet. What's it, what's that really mean? It means don't covet and don't steal. And that's what it means. And, and, and actually this is, you know, the church that we have come out of and liberal Protestantism in general was notorious for committees to study an issue about which there was a command. What's to study? I mean, there is a reality of moral theology in, in, in taking firm principles and sometimes the application of those principles needs some discussion. But the idea that what God has said doesn't mean what he said, if, we, if we're going to fudge on that, we're always going to get trouble. So, Balak, so Balaam goes with him and encounters the, the, the angel of the Lord and, and it's like a warning, like you're, you're already leaning towards profit at the expense of obedience. And the angel's reminding him of this. So he goes with Balak and three times Balak takes him up to a mountain and three times Balaam pronounces a blessing on Israel, not a curse. And Balak is mad and sends him away and doesn't give him anything. But the later story on Balaam is that after all that happened, um, he gave a separate further counsel, which he probably got money, that he could undermine Israel by enticing uh, Israelites into idolatry and inviting them to worship their God and the attendant um, immorality that, that surrounded that. There's a famous scene when, so this is how the Moab, Moabites begin to overcome the Israelites because they go through and, and, and they, they sort of seduce them into, and there's an Israelite who goes into um, participate in um, the Moabite worship and then into a sexual union with a Moabite woman, which was part of the worship. And Phineas, a priest, it is that is filled with zeal, and he goes into the tent with a spear and pins them both to the ground. And it stopped the plague that was going on in Israel. And there's a place in the psalm where it says, and Phineas interposed, and the plague ceased, and was counted for righteousness. So Balaam then is synonymous with seduction, with being, being drawn about by the, by the love of money, and by compromising for gain, uh, and so when, when his when his when he um, we get in Jude here, then that they've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. They're enticed by gain at the expense of God's word, and that's um, sometimes. Doing what God asks us to do isn't going to be the most profitable thing. Or it's going to cause us some kind of loss. And that does that be only monetary. It could mean, yeah, this means this. And faith has to be willing to accept that loss. Balaam, faithfulness would have meant, no, I'm not giving, you know, there's no... Now, it's not to say the Moabites wouldn't have seduced the Israelites anyway, but but he but 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 Balaam is is that that's his story. 
So again, narrative. The Christian community that Jude is writing to are the people of God who live in the narrative of Israel, saved by God from Egypt, saved by God through the baptism waters from sin, living in him faithfully with a vocation to travel faithfully through the wilderness of this world into the promised land. And that's the narrative they're called to live in. Those who appear to be in the church but are acting unfaithfully are defined by a different narrative. Cain, Balaam, and, and these are various ways that people who are part of Israel rebelled against God and experienced judgment for their rebellion. And that's a, a warning Judas making to people in the Christian community. Don't get caught up in this. It doesn't end well. Now, who is Korah? Perished in the rebellion of Korah. Let us turn again to Numbers. Um, Numbers chapter 16 this time. Um, and Korah and um, along with the, 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 uh, the troika of rebels is all in chapter 16 of Numbers, verse 1. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And what's happening is that um, because Moses, in general, has, has led Israel out of Egypt, but they're in the wilderness and it's not going so well. They're having to suffer. There's a bit of a rebellion against Moses by some people. Where's this guy taking us? What, what are you doing? Notice the similarity of the narrative that just as the Israelites didn't like that Moses led them in a path of suffering. So the difficulty of the Christian life is we don't like it when Jesus leads us in that way. And rebels come up and say, well, I'm rejecting the authority of the church and her tradition and her appointed leaders because we think we should do, we, we know how to do it better. And for Korah, he was a Levite um, who was an assistant, like a deacon, in the, like would be for us in the temple. <clears throat> and um, so let, let's, let's just read a little bit of the story to get the flavor of it here. Um, <clears throat> chapter 16 of Numbers, um, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Zizhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. <clears throat> they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? 
So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Now, what's the charge against Moses as he exalts himself? Is there anything in the text that suggests that Moses is a self-aggrandizing person? He didn't really want to lead Israel out of Egypt. He, 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 so actually, the truth of the narrative, his exaltation is entirely God's choice of him. So, but you take too much upon yourself. But in fact, it's exactly what these men are all doing. So he fell on his face because Moses understood, like, oh boy. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near him. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. It shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing that, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near himself to do the work of the tabernacle and to stand before the congregation to serve them? And you're also seeking the priesthood. There's a hearkening here to the sin of the angels mentioned. They left their proper abode and wanted something that wasn't theirs. The Levites are appointed to be assistants, and they want to be priests, but God didn't make them that. And this idea of, of usurping that which is not given is, is a highly problematic thing. So this does not go well. Um, we'll skip down a little bit um, to verse 25. Um, And they come up in the morning, they take incense in the censers, and they offer this offering to God. And in verse 25, Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed, followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. And notice how Jude, using this, is like, don't get infected by this. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And going on down to um, verse 31, now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth, and swallowed them up with their households, all the men of Korah with all their goods. So, it's something here that's, that's um, yeah, that's a whole story we could digress in, and you know, God being mean or however we want to unpack that or whatever the people usually rebel, uh, uh, object to. Willful rebellion against God 
is a highly dangerous thing. God is long-suffering and forbearing. He wants all to stop it. But there is a serious and long-term consequence to not stopping it. And that's where we're getting into all these things. Um, that, you know, he shall come again with glory to judge. Now we're in a time of, of probation and redemption come. But it's a serious thing. So you don't want to get caught up in the, in the, in the church, which is living in the narrative Israel, lives in Christ, risen with Christ in baptism, already partaking of um, the kingdom, looking forward to the resurrection and the life will to come. You don't want to get caught up in fellowship with people who claim to be in the body, but are compromising for money and gain, who are sinning and unwilling to repent and blaming other people, who are rebelling against the authority of the church because they're grumpy and, and don't want to endure faithfully. And so he's marking out the, these narratives that, that kind of characterize, and this happens in the church all the time. Um, and um, so Cain, Balaam, rebellion of Korah, verse 11 of Jude, um, Serious examples about what happens when, when, um, and I think that the important thing to notice here is um, that in all these examples, as in the epistle of Jude, <clears throat> the error is um, those who claim to believe and are baptized members, because they wouldn't be in the church if they weren't initiated and yet are behaving in these rebellious and disobedient ways. It's not all the people out in the world who are doing that. That's the church has an ambassadorial role to the world. It doesn't mean it doesn't tell it is wrong. But the sin of someone who does not know God is not as serious as the sin of someone who does know God. And this is something when St. Paul talks about discipline in his, in his, he has one passage where he says, I wrote to you not to have fellowship with immoral people. I didn't mean the immoral people of the world. Otherwise, you have to go out of the world. You couldn't, I mean, you know, you, you couldn't do business. I mean, anyone who calls himself a brother or sister and lives in this way. And I think to some degree, this there's a whole lot of 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 um there's a conversation here about how we deal in the church with people who are in the process of growing into the image of Christ and struggling and how we distinguish that from the willfully rebellious so because you could certainly take. Jude's very white and black language and start picking out people we're going to kick out and like that. So I don't think the application of Jude is simple in the body of Christ because we do, um, 
want to have a community of grace in which people are str struggling with sin can grow. Let's make a distinction here. Moral theology is very important, though, between um, sin committed willfully and rebelliously and sin committed in weakness or or because one is overcome, not, not yet strong enough to resist. And that's what we deal gently with, with, with the weak who are struggling. And we have the sacrament of confession and, and we all come each week to confess. So there's a level in which all are struggling. But the presumption is that we want to be who we're supposed to be. And we're struggling to do that. The different, it's different when somebody comes in and openly does something wrong and doesn't repent of it. That's when church discipline comes in. We have to say, you can't do that. We can't be here. And it's a distinction. It's a subtle distinction. But, and I don't think it's, it comes out mostly I think in these small early communities, every probably knew everybody, and you, it's a lot harder to hide than it is now. You can hide a lot easier in the contemporary world. Large populations, we all live in, in places. So it's not incumbent upon the church to go seek out what everyone's doing in the privacy of their own home. Um, and even he says, you know, that, that some of these things will become clear over time, but when somebody openly proclaims their rebellion and demonstrates it with behavior that, that here I am, then we have to go and say, you can't do that. If you do that, you, you can't take communion. And that's kind of the thing. Does that make sense to everyone? And that, so that's the application of kind of a pastoral moral theology. These aren't simple questions, but I would say the one thing now about the church in our time is we don't, the church, we're not aiming to be, you know, you could certainly see how um, an epistle like Jude could lead into the error of the Pharisees, you know, where legalism looking for every error and, and driving people out. And we don't want that. Um, however, in our time, we're not mainly, in our culture, we're not mainly susceptible to the error of the Pharisees, but we're more susceptible to the church looking pretty much like the world. And so our witness in the world now requires that we have a sense of this is what we are. And we understand that people struggle in their current states of life to grow into that. And there's all kinds of room here for grace and struggle and growth and confession. And we don't go around hunting people down or, or uh, uh, you know, breaking the bruised reed or quench, quenching the smoking flax, as, as um, the prophecy about Jesus says. On the other hand, we must be clear we don't do this. Maybe, maybe to make it more clear in, in terms of some moral ideas, for example, um, well, I mean, abortion's a big issue now. Um, we're clear about what we believe, where we believe that life begins at conception and we honor it throughout the stage of life. 
the reality is in that every church in our culture of any significant size, we have population can say multiple women who've had them, who've been through this experience in our culture and need to experience grace and, and forgiveness. So the, the, the grace of redemption means that we, and when I say they've had them, this is a, a systemic and communal responsibility because like the woman caught in adultery in John 8, when they, the men drag her there with, this, with the curious absence of the partner, as though she was caught in the act all by herself. You know, when, when you deal with the abortion issue that falls on the woman, yes, there was a man involved in this who usually abandoned, who took something and abandoned responsibility. So the whole idea that this is all about that. But all I'm saying is the standard doesn't change. It's what we believe. We don't do this. Be clear, we don't do this. But we understand sometimes people in moments do fall into this and ministry of redemption, of experiencing forgiveness and grace and moving through it. We believe that, you know, our sexual ethic is clear. Sex is for a man and a woman in marriage. Outside of that, everything else is, now that's not what everyone's doing. And there's people who struggle with various things as they grow, but so we pastoral and grace is how people grow from the struggle they're in now to a place of, 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 of faithfulness and obedience, which will be a, a contented, happier place because no one's actually being, it's, none of this is working for anybody. The funny thing all the, all the protests about is not, no one's, I don't see a great deal of happiness out there in this in this uh, sexually free world. Anyway, so the distinction between the standard and how people, humans who have fallen, all of us, who have all of us violated that standard in some way are growing into it is the tension between this. And what we don't, um, what, so we, we are, we want to be pastoral with everyone who has, has fallen into sin but we will not tolerate someone who says this is a sin is okay, and we're going to do this openly and say it's great, and that's the distinction between the two, the, the things here. And so, the, the, that's the one concern I have in the language of Jude. It sound it can easily sound Pharisaical, and, and could run that way with it, and that's not how we do it. And it's a paradox that we take. All of us, God, Christ takes all of us where we are to bring us where we're going to be in the resurrection. And as we were talking about this last night in, in the image of um, virginity and the church, um, because um, St. Paul, we use this image that I, about uh, desiring to present the Corinthians as a chaste virgin to Christ. Virginity in that sense is the purity of heart and mind and intention and behavior that results from Christ's work in us. It's not the starting place. And the image of, 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 of redemption. Uh, so I just important to keep those two things in tension. And we, we can err on being pharisaical 
and, and forgetting that we're all struggling, we can err on being lax and tolerating things like it doesn't matter. And we talk, and it's interesting in the in the story in John's gospel that that the um, there are different images that tie these together. We certainly have, you know, or even all the gospels, the mother of God, behold the handmaid of the Lord, which actually comes from Luke, but he sort of the the epitome of one who who surrenders and then works it through rather faithfully, uh, and that we also have Mary Ma Mary Magdalene. And I think the woman caught in adultery actually is symbolic of Old Testament Israel and her redemption through Christ. Symbolic of all of us who come and he says, um, I don't condemn you either. Now don't do it anymore. And that's so the don't do it anymore is an important thing for us. We, we, need, we, we need to walk that way. And that's what all of those um, warnings in verse 11 are about. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. So they come, love feasts, is, this is a thing called the agape that the early church had the Lord's Supper, but also typically at a separate meal called the agape, where they share a meal together, and you know, kind of like we do when we get together and have a meal. Um, and there, it's a spot when somebody is feasting with us who is willfully rebelling against what the church is and does. Clouds without water, promising rain that will grow a crop, but they never have any. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Fruitlessness, nothing is being produced in their lives. <clears throat> Reminds us of the words of Jesus, you will know them by their fruits. What is being produced in this life? Do we see anything that looks like it comes from God? And even, which includes repentance and sorrow and all those things that lead then to, to some growth and holiness. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. <clears throat> now, this next two verses are uh, uh, slightly discussion worthy. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch um, biblically is appears in Genesis chapter four or five where he's the one who walked with God and God took him. <clears throat> then there's a book, the book of Enoch, which is probably written 200 years before Christ, but put as though it were written by this man, Enoch. 
and it, it was read by a lot of Jews at the time of Christ. It's a book that has a lot of images of the coming of the Messiah, the resurrection, a lot of images of angels and things. Fragments of the book of Enoch were in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the question here is, well, how does Jude quote the book of Enoch when it's not the Bible? Um, but the Jewish people read a lot of things in the intertestamental period, and some of it had stuff that, that contained truth but wasn't overtly scriptural. And so, for example, we have the books called the Apocrypha. We read them, but, but they're different for us than the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we don't prove doctrine by them. So what he quotes here from the book of Enoch that um, the Lord's coming with 10,000s of the saints, execute judgment, is simply a biblical statement. It's a biblical truth expressed in this book. So that's a way in which this apocryphal book comports with the scriptures. And so that, that is brought in by, by, um, by Jude. It doesn't mean that the book of Enoch is for us to be put on the same level as the uh, scriptures. You can look up the Book of Enoch. You can find it online. Google the Book of Enoch, and you can read it it's out there. Uh, it's not scripture. It has a lot of things we don't necessarily hold to, but it was it's influential in, in, in first century Judaism. Verse 16, yes. That means in the genealogy, of Genesis, he's the seventh generation from Adam. That's, that's I, I mean, I'm counting it. Let's see here. If you go to Genesis. Um, so Enoch is down in verse 18 of chapter 5 of Genesis. We're not going to count out the generations that, 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 that appear there, but I think there are more than three. But there, there is also, so the book of Enoch, there may be a, a, a tradition of this. We should also understand that um, genealogy is biblically if we say such and such begat such and such, that that the um, son of can be descendant of, so genealogies can have gaps. So that would explain some of it. I could be the son of my grandfather, is what I'm saying. And and if. Or, or, and, and a father's name could be skipped in a genealogy if the more important connection was grandfather to even grandson, rightfully said he's the son of. That same word means that. Doesn't mean just the next one. So verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they, they, mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Very clear in that language that these are not people, you know, struggling in the Christian life, 
occasionally falling. He's talking about arrogant rebels. So just be clear about that. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he told you that there would be mockers in the last time would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So it shouldn't surprise us when bad people arise in the world or in the church. It's, we've been told that is so. And when people are shocked at something, it's like, why are you can only be shocked if you haven't read the scriptures that, that these things are so. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. And here's the key then for us is, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. This gets back to um, verse three, where he started saying, I, I, I write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered. So we hold on to the scriptures as they've come down to us in the tradition, the creeds, the things that churches always believe, you know, the moral framework of life, the, the commandment to love God and others and to pray in the spirit. We're in this different narrative than these, these the, the, the rebels. Keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And verse 22, it kind of gets into the moral distinction we've made. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. You see they're struggling and you want to help, but others save with fear, pulling them out of fire, hating even the garment defiled by their flesh. So in other words, what's, Ringleaders of rebellion are especially culpable, but have compassion. You're, you're, it's a pastoral concern uh, for individuals, but also a leadership concern for the community that people who are influential don't get to get to to um, the willful rebels don't get to exist in the, in the community. And that's the need for the discipline. Verse 24, now to him was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So despite all these things, Christ, to whom we pray in the spirit, holding on to the faith, can keep us from stumbling. As we stay in the faith, as we walk in our prayer, as we read the scriptures, the error of those who are in error becomes clearer and we can resist the temptation to be drawn into it. And, and, and the goal is to present us faultless. And faultless does not mean sinless perfection. It means that we hold on to Jesus who cleanses us from all our sin. And he'll present us for the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.
Any questions, thoughts about Jude? It's kind of a wild epistle in the way he is very uh, angrily denouncing. It's sort of interesting to, to note that the commonality between the attitude of Jude and Moses. Jude is mad about these, these rebels. Moses, all right. You know, so when people willfully rebel, it's right for leadership to say no. Um, so we've said we're going to do the rest of what are um, sometimes called the, the Catholic or universal epistles. So next we're, we're going to do James. And then we're going to do First Peter, and then we're going to do Second Peter. That's our next season of time list. So James will it'll be epistle has some length to it, a lot of good things to say in there, and that we should have some fun with. All right, let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make His face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Good to see you all online. Give you a here. Bye to everyone. <laughs>